1: welcome to episode 573 with my guest Michael Nam Kung I am Paul Gilmartin and uh, this is the mental illness happy hour and it is good to be back uh, as I uh, normally do every year I take December off and so we're back with a brand new episode this week and uh, it taking that month off really it's funny the first eight years I did the podcast I never took a week off I, and I don't know well, I suppose it wasn't until I started feeling like I needed a break that I started taking a break, taking July and December off, and it's good to, to be back and, and feel recharged. And somebody sent me an email asking, um, saying that they really would love to have new episodes in December and I don't know if they're asking for me to uh, double up on my episodes in November and then release those extra episodes uh, in December, but um, or if they're just saying uh, take November off. But uh, no, I kind of like, <laughs> kind of like how it is. I, and I really appreciate that you um, get a lot out of the podcast. Uh, but I gotta, I gotta do it for. For my mental health I gotta walk the walk if I'm gonna talk the talk I gotta walk the walk um, the website for this show is metalpod.com metalpod also the social media handle you can follow us at and uh, as I say every episode I'm not a therapist I'm a jackass that tells dick jokes I used to host a TV show where we showed movies and cooked chicken uh, this is happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself never and he writes i've struggled with depression for most of my life and i cut myself a lot like my body is covered in literally hundreds of scars top to bottom anyways i used to work at a retail store as a cashier and every now and then a customer would make comment about my scars usually something negative i always hated when people said something It made me angry and ashamed all at once, and I just wanted to tell people to mind their own fucking business. So this one day, I'm ringing up a woman, and she asks, what did you fight to get those scars? I forgot what I said, but I remember it was some vague non-answer because I hated talking about it, and I'm sure she knew that they were self-inflicted. She finished paying and started to walk out, but then she stopped at the door, turned around, and said, well, whatever it was, you won and that was it that moment she made me realize that all this crap that i've been dealing with all my life it hasn't killed me yet i'm still here i won god damn i love that woman for saying exactly what i needed to hear i wish i could find her and tell her how much that little moment means to me i'll never forget it wow that is so beautiful That is so beautiful. And I'm so glad that you guys didn't disagree and get into a knife fight. Oh, Paul, that was tasteless. That was tasteless. No, seriously, that, uh, wow. I'm so grateful to you guys that fill out the surveys, especially the ones that, that share moments like that. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Rosie, and she writes... This survey is probably going to end with you telling me to go fuck myself. Oh, this was the one uh, about why don't I take uh, November off. And no, I do not want to tell you to go fuck yourself. Your email was really sweet or your survey was really sweet. Uh, This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Aizu Chan. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And she asks, how do you get over something you did when you were a child that was really bad? That is such a great question, and there is no one answer to that. But one of the things that I believe in is that we have to open up to someone, whether it's a therapist, a support group, um, a spiritual advisor. Uh, It starts with us shining light. what it was, because in my experience, usually we're being unforgiving with ourselves. Uh, I think an important thing is ask yourself, am I still doing these behaviors as an adult? Um, The answer is probably no, and if the answer was yes, then definitely get help because you're probably dealing with something that's compulsive and that, you know, is a, is addictive. And, you know, you can live your whole life wishing things were different, but if you find yourself stuck in a pattern, uh, ask for help. Ask for help. This is from uh, a survey uh called Sexual Abuse uh, of Young Males by Older Females. And um, this was filled out by a straight woman in her 30s who uh, calls herself somebody. She was raised in a totally chaotic uh, environment. Um, And she writes, I was in my 20s and he was 15 or 16 years old. He was the first person I saw before entering the library. I noticed how tall he was, over six feet. I didn't realize that I was intensely looking at him. He was helping an older woman uh, to take a seat. He followed me into the library a few steps behind up a flight of stairs. I remember looking up from my laptop to see a guy towering over me. He told me that I walked fast, but mostly he wanted to know why I stared at him. I was shocked that he noticed me. I had really low self-esteem and was blushing. He had beautiful eyes. I figured he was probably 17 years old. I wanted to be with someone who was 25 years or older. He didn't seem to take no for an answer. I decided to go on one date. I figured he would see that we didn't have anything in common, but it was the opposite. He was smart, funny, and overall a great guy. We went on a few more dates before my guilt made it impossible to see him again. I had to block him on social media, and I stopped going to the local library. He would ask, ask all the librarians if they had seen me. He would create various fake accounts just to DM me. He is not the type of person to take rejection well, because every time I blocked him, a new account would appear. And it happened for a few months, but he eventually found himself a different victim. A 40-year-old woman who was very lonely and obese. I knew because he had DM'd me about how he had found someone else. I didn't really understand why he needed to tell me. I was relieved that the DMs. I was relieved uh, that the DMs would stop, but also shocked. He wouldn't date people his own age. He told me that he liked knowing that he could hold something against us—mental blackmail. He seemed to get off on the power play. I blocked him. If something happened, did you ever tell anyone? Did you think it was normal? Do you believe it had any effect on you? We didn't have sex. I know it wasn't normal. I never told a soul. Yes, I have a hard time being in any library, and that that was always my safe space as a child. Remembering these things, what feelings come up? I feel angry for allowing myself to fall for a child and anger at myself for being so alone that I was separate to feel any kind of love? Do you feel any damage was done? Innocent, and natural, or somewhere in between? Somewhere in between, question mark. For me, I like the friendship. For him, well, he continued seeking older women. Um, and she hates. Uh, writes that she hates that it happened. Thank you for sharing all of that, and I think that's such... Um, a great example of how complicated and on um, such a continuum that things can be, and I and I also um, like that you referred to him as a child um, because he was—he was fifteen or sixteen years old—and um, it it's um, yeah, I just appreciate your honesty uh, about that. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Chelsea, and she writes, Do you find your old jokes to be triggering to your, quote, old life? I'm a big fan of your older stuff, but I was wondering if it was triggering for you. Sorry if that's a weird question. Uh, No, not a weird question at all. And that's, I think a lot of people, uh, I used to do stand-up for 25 years. I used to be a touring stand-up comic. And yeah, I look back at some of my old material and I cringe not only at the jokes, but the way that I performed them. Um, I think one of the dangers when you're doing stand-up all the time is you can kind of go on autopilot and lose that conversational connection with an, an audience and I look back at some of my old stand-up and uh, and I just cringe and I'm sure part of that is being too hard on myself um, and I also feel kind of sad that I remember how I felt um, back then so angry and alone and uh, kind of emotionally stunted um, I mean, there are some jokes that I, I look back at, and I'm like, oh, that's a great joke. I'm proud of that. But, yeah, it's a very, very mixed bag. We are sponsored this week, as always, by BetterHelp.com, online counseling. Um, I got an email from somebody who uh, has been doing BetterHelp, and they said that they feel that their counselor isn't a good fit. Well, one of the things that you can do at BetterHelp is you can always switch counselors, and they'll give you... Um, it, there, there should be an option on your home screen to to switch counselors, and they will give you a selection of um, other counselors that you can try with, you know, some blurbs about what their areas of expertise are, and um, and if you don't like that list, you know, you can say, show me more. So, uh, that's one of the things that I do like about BetterHelp. I've been using them on and off for, you know, four years or so. And I'm really clicking with my new therapist, Heidi, and she's really, uh, helping me be more productive. I'm writing more jokes. I've been doing some satire lately and, um, I'm just uh, feeling really creative and, and, and I'm digging it. So if you want to know more about BetterHelp, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part and um, you can uh, experience uh, 10% off your first month of counseling. And uh, yeah, I'm a big fan. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air, Pulitzer Prize finalist and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com breath. Okay, picture this.
0: It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
1: And then, uh, finally, this is an some moment filled out by Jillian, and she writes, Very recently, actually on his 62nd birthday, my dad, an alcoholic who I had court-ordered into rehab twice in his life was diagnosed with stage 4 esophageal cancer and was dead within five weeks. The kicker was that he had finally gotten and stayed sober the whole year leading up to him dying and the second sectioning into rehab after the second sectioning into rehab, but I had stopped speaking to him after all the years of abuse and letdown. I did stay with him and help him during his short-lived illness and death. The night he died, me, my two brothers, and my dad's siblings were all there in the hospital while, while he was dying. He was fading in and out of consciousness, and I was sitting there next to him holding his hand. At one point, he was awake, and while holding my hand, raised it up to his mouth, and we all awed as we thought he was gonna kiss my hand, but he instead wiped his mouth with it. We all laughed, but inside, it was a perfect representation of my relationship with him. Your fear of death is your love of life in reverse. (laughs) Risking being hurt.
0: Push it all down. You can't go around it. Ireland,
1: like, we don't do mental health talk. Through is the only path. No one is ever alone. There's somebody else out there. Don't forget. Experiencing the same thing as you. That the places you feel most broken now. Just gotta look for them. will one day be your greatest strength
2: and when you find them it's
1: a great feeling and i'm suddenly feeling horrible about (laughs) making that joke but that's how far i will go to get a laugh because i am empty inside
2: ah you're in the right place
1: i'm here with michael namkung who is uh an artist uh a teacher um
2: do you have a podcast i did just start one yes okay what's mm-hmm. it called it's called raking light right on yeah right on poetry and meditation
1: uh you are a former world champion athlete it doesn't specify uh what you were a champion and what uh i, I was curious what what ultimate frisbee oh yeah. i love ultimate frisbee yes no way yeah have you played i have yeah i have yeah it's a lot of fun yes uh What's the longest you've ever thrown a frisbee
2: oh, or have uh, you ever measured it? uh no, I don't think, but probably around well, the wind makes a big difference, yeah, um, and how I'm feeling at any given time, and I think but I don't know maybe a hundred yards yeah on with a wind, a little wind at my back, right, right. <laughs> yeah, well, so so cool. Uh, do you still do it? I do, yeah, I'm still playing with, in these um um older men's leagues. Yeah, yeah. So it's fun.
1: And is it the
2: football style one or the golf style one? Yeah, no. It's it's also colloquially known as frisbee football or okay. a, few, a few other names that are. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah.
1: So uh, Michael and I were talking before we started recording. About what we wanted to focus on, art is a big part of of your life and kind of the connection between art and our uh, emotional struggles. Would that be fair to to yeah. say? Mm-hmm. Um, let's let's and, and we mentioned pain um, before we started recording. Um, talk about pain in your life. Give me a picture, kind of uh, where you were raised, what family life was like, your inner world, etc.
2: There's lots of pictures coming to mind, um, but we, I was raised in the San Francisco Bay Area in the East Bay. Um, so I think the the way that I've come to understand, I'm going to go backwards a little bit, actually. Yeah, yeah. I, as an athlete, as a as a competitor, pain has always been something that's present and very clear in my experience through my body, because the goal is always to push yourself to find out how far you can go and how much can you endure pain wise or discomfort wise on the quest to be the best you can be in your chosen arena right Mm -hmm. and so pain is always there at every experience to confront and to bump up against and so experiencing physical pain has always been since i was a kid since i started playing competitively which was a very young age um part of my experience like pain is there at the threshold of what you're becoming. And fast forward to starting an art career and wanting to find a authentic voice for myself and understanding myself as an athlete in the world or as a physicality that moves in the world Mm -hmm. and that bumps up against people and spaces in the ground and sort of identifies identified myself as a as a physical grounded sort of being in that way um i started to bring that language of pushing my body to its limits into the into art in in what way um basically by combining art materials or drawing materials or other art making materials video um live performance um installation but mostly drawing physical drawing uh materials with sports regimens so um Usually in any kind of exercise regimen, you're trying to push yourself to, or you use a a structure that goes for a certain number of minutes or a certain number of reps Mm -hmm. or to fatigue. And so I'd experiment with a lot of those different kinds of combinations. Basically, if you could just picture yourself doing any kind of physical exercise, and what would that look like if you were also making a drawing at the same time? Based on your movements. Doing body.
1: squats while you draw an elephant. Exactly. <laughs> well, not an elephant.
2: So you're drawing, you're not drawing a thing. You're actually becoming the drawing tool itself. And you are not in any kind of con- con- uh, conscious control of the result. It's just an effect of the way that you move in space.
1: Oh, so your body is your, kind of drawing it. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Right, so for Your the,
1: knees giving out is a part of the uh, the drawing, or your uh, your arm failure. is starting to shake.
2: Right, so your failure is built into the, the drawing parameters or the, right. or the this overall structure of it. So the, the exercise that I've done for the longest standing time is a wall sit drawing, and that's doing a wall sit for as long as you can. So if you're not familiar with the wall sit, it's a... I you, did
1: it this morning. You did you? Yeah. How, yeah. How did it feel? Oh, great. I play hockey, and oh. it's such an important you know, exercise yeah.
2: to you know Absolutely. Get,
1: keep a strong base when I'm, when I'm playing hockey. Yes. Do you do it with the exercise ball between you and the wall or just your back flat up against the wall? Just the back. Okay. And so, uh, how long are you doing the, the wall sit for?
2: So it depends. It depends on the, t- on the, the, the context and how my current level of physical fitness and, um, and a lot of the other factors too that are hard to predict, like just the energy of the moment and what's going on in my head um but they what range. you what you ate the kind of sleep you got yeah, right, yeah, and so the goal though for that that particular performance is to go for as long as I can until the body can no longer sustain I can no longer hold myself against the wall, and so right. um and while I'm drawing on the wall behind me, right yeah,
1: and so typically how how long would
2: uh You'd I'd say doing. typically anywhere between like eight and 13 minutes is usually what it is. <laughs> it's it, a long time. It, yeah. I, I had to make a decision actually quite a number of years ago to stop counting that. Yes. Just, I did use the um, how long is it measure for right. a long time to kind of motivate me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I didn't like that conversation anymore in my head. So I, it
1: it seems kind of counterintuitive to, to art because it, it, I mean, unless you're doing something about the ego.
2: <laughs> right yeah i mean it's counterintuitive to art but very much um embedded in sports culture right so to measure, much. To measure it's all things.
1: about numbers yes you know can i beat the number i had before yeah you know and it's interesting how many of of the world's best best athletes have kind of a self-punishing almost ocd ritual uh growing up larry bird wouldn't allow himself to go home from the basketball court until he made like 25 shots in a row I used to
2: do that when I was a kid. Did you? Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would do that same thing. I would not allow my, I don't think it was 25, I think it was 10. Yeah. But I'd be out in the basketball court and I had to hit 10. I mean, actually, my um, on my Ultimate Frisbee team, we've done that too. Like, uh, you have to complete 20 passes in a row as a group in a group um, sort of drill, right. or you have to start over. And this could go on for 10 20 minutes if somebody's not paying attention you know and
1: it's such a good focus y- yeah, exercise yeah. yeah yeah
2: uh so uh, talk about
1: mental and emotional pain or, or let's go back to the original question that I, yeah. that i had about paint a picture of you know what home life was like what was your inner life like where
2: yeah uh, well i were... think that the, the why why i wanted to start with that is because i Began to realize how my focus on my physical pain was both a way of avoiding emotional pain and other interior hurts that were very much alive within me, and in the end, kind of directed me straight into that. I, it became a connection I was I made after years of doing this kind of work, this physical drawing work, to realize that I was actually trying to get to something deeper than physical pain.
1: And what helped you make that realization? Or was it just a, kind uh, of an epiphany that came out of nowhere?
2: Hard to say. I, I, I don't think it was. No, it wasn't an, epiph- an epiphany. It was more of a, um, well, uh, I, I don't know, <laughs> to be honest, exactly how that came about. Other than I became very much aware that the pain that I was feeling when I was performing physically was starting to bring up um, uncomfortable thoughts. It's not that they were uncomfortable thoughts. It's that it's that they became louder because mm. there were always uncomfortable thoughts around performance, around what if I give up now? Am I failing if I give up now? I said I was. I, I said I wanted to go this long, and it feels like I can't do it now. Oh, I don't like the way that feels. So that that sort of part of I don't like the way that feels. That was more of the kind of revelatory thoughts rather than just accepting that oh this is terrible or i'm in such misery this really hurts why am i doing that kind of beating myself up it's, it's like your soul and your ego had a switchblade fight under the viaduct <laughs> right well it's almost like um my soul finally showed up right to to to, to spar with right. the ego yeah <laughs> it, what were some of the thoughts
1: that were coming up that were getting loud um, or feelings,
2: the, both the thoughts and the feelings were that I had this voice inside me that was in pain, um, that I hadn't seen in a long time, but I kind of began to recognize or I, there was a familiarity. There was a sense of, oh, I know you from long ago. And I know you really well, but you haven't been around for a while or and I was very much aware that I have not allowed you to be around right. for a while and that's that's when kind of when i I realized that all of this physical performance and performance in general um and forcing myself to show up in the world in a certain way was occluding this um deeper aspect of myself or this part of me that wanted to cry out, stop performing. You know, there's something deeper in, in here that is more of a life force or that has been a life force and that's been made to be small. And, um, I mean, actually uh, the epiphany didn't really come through this, uh, sports, drawing type of thing exactly, but it came when I heard um, Mary Oliver's wild geese. When I heard the lines, um, you only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Do you know this poem? I don't. Oh. May you share? Please. Yeah. It's, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting, You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I'll tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of rain are moving over the landscapes, over the valleys and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. Wow. That's beautiful. Isn't it? There is not it There was this sense in that, well, in several of those lines, really, that first, that you do not have to be good. You do not have to keep showing up and trying to do everything right and be good and be perfect and not make mistakes You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for 100 miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves.
1: And why is it so hard to find out what we
2: love or even what we like? Well, that was the question that became so alive in my mind is is that I was not aware of, I didn't know how to, what did I love? what where was i putting my energy what was i what was i living for really and i think if i didn't have some other internal voice in me that knew there was something in me that loves and that i had abandoned or not nourished then i might have been truly lost but i felt in that moment when i first heard that poem and heard those lines that i had A soul. Or I remembered that I had a soul. Mm -hmm. I remembered that there was a voice inside me. I remembered that there was something deeper. And in that moment, I also realized that I didn't know who I was. Hold on one second.
1: Gracie. Gracie, come. I shut the the shutters. (laughs) And yet still, (laughs) she's policing the neighborhood. (laughs) Good girl. Okay.
2: You were saying rather suddenly realized that I didn't know my own voice. I knew that there was a voice in there, and I knew that the voice that I had cultivated to be in the world with wasn't really mine. I sort of suddenly didn't know what I meant, what did I mean by the words I was using. Mm -hmm. I was using other people's language. I was using language that allowed me to fit in a certain type of um, identity within a career that served me in a specific way. And I had this feeling that there was a voice that was trying to speak, and I didn't know i didn't know how to even address it. It was like it was a foreign being in me, but it had something to say. And I had this sense that I couldn't trust anyone other than that one in me. And I couldn't even trust my own voice that I knew, but I had to somehow start opening the conversation between myself and this hidden part of myself.
1: And was... A part of that listening to your body oh yes yeah talk talk about that. and before and before you answer that question you know the thought just occurred to me it's amazing how much of our lives we spend unconsciously not moving towards what we authentically love but moving away from what we're subconsciously afraid of and the crystal ball picture we paint of the future and who we think we need to be or what we need to do to be safe in the world and it's usually the opposite of vulnerability it's usually trying to be impressive
2: completely yeah yeah um
1: so uh the question was what what were the feelings that you were experiencing
2: uh, oh yeah well, this is kind of related to, I think, maybe that second line of um, you do not do not have to walk on your knees for 100 miles through the desert repenting. And I was very much baked into my way of being and approaching the world and orienting myself in my work that I was to make, make it happen, to effort myself and to achieve and to push and to work hard and to put my nose to the grindstone and sweat it out. And fight my way through life, and i i did I was feeling that in my body. I was feeling like many people feel when they get to this sort of midpoint in their lives that my body is feeling not only worn down and tired, but I don't even feel like i'm very present in my body i'm using my body to do right. things rather than inhabiting and really dwelling in my body as a space of Respect and sanctuary and love and I was exhausted and I didn't want to go on on the path that I was walking
1: would it be fair to say that you had been living your life thinking that if you aren't putting a huge amount of effort and achievement as a reward that you're not enough
2: absolutely yeah what
1: was it like beginning to realize that you were enough just as you are without effort, without achievement? Or or are you still not there?
2: I'm more there than I've ever been, but I, I, I wouldn't be completely honest if I said that that's a battle or a an, um, I even hesitate to even use that word battle, but um, it's an ongoing healing process for me that I um, have been doggedly loving, you know, and, and it's been, it was a very rude awakening at first and very difficult. So, I mean, getting to this, this question of pain, that's where the pain is, um, or I found the pain to be. Not the physical pain, but the emotional pain. The emotional pain pain buried below this layer of um, shame that I'm not good enough unless I'm achieving. I'm not good enough unless others are giving me a certain kind of praise or feedback or Mm -hmm. validation in the world. And um, to really feel how I didn't have a core sense of... Worth, that was the most painful part because that was the most scary part. Who am I without exactly. my achievements? Right. Without right.
1: that's the only thing that's special about me. Right. And, and it's it's amazing what a mirage that is, but how beautiful it is when we see it for what it is, and we realize that the best being special parts of life are having an intimate conversation with somebody showing them the side of us that we are ashamed of or that we want to hide having a moment of um you know breaking down giving up saying i don't know please help me i'm confused what do i do i can't take it anymore yeah
2: who who knew who fucking knew (laughs) not us no and not, not not our parents either yeah right yeah well uh, that's that's
1: a a good segue uh was there s- childhood stuff kind of involved in that in that pain that you had buried
2: yeah i mean there was certainly um an unstable environment in our childhood home there's different forms of um abuse and neglect and abandonment and, um, the, the one that, I mean, there's, it's, it's hard to even for me to even identify what's, what's the one, what's the sort of one that paints the picture, because there's many ones that paint different, different aspects of the picture. Let's hear some of them.
1: Yeah. I, am I'm in no hurry. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Well, um, okay. If you're comfortable talking about it. No, I am. And I, and I'm, I'm, I mean, I'll say that I am. Uh, I've been thinking about this one for a while, mm-hmm. and um, trying to get at the heart of the trauma that I that that I've experienced, and that I think um, has very much defined the path that I walked for most of my life. And it comes from an early memory. One of my earliest memories. It must have been about four years old, and um, this is also the f- opening poem to the the uh, live performance that I'm I'm currently in the process of uh, producing. Um, and this piece is called. So I I I, I, I want to say a little bit more about that. I I found that I wanted to be able to address this in the form of through poetry through art rather than sort of tell a story about what happened, mm-hmm. um, part of the process of, of uh, healing or coming to terms with and transmuting and making sense of that part of my life has been to create from that space of pain, um, which is also to say it feels like it's creating it from a sense of love. Like really seeing all of it for what it was and not running from the more uncomfortable aspects of it. And
1: and by love, you mean self-compassion, self-acceptance? Yes, seeing
2: really with really clear, open, um, approving eyes, like saying this is the experience that happened or that I had. Right. So this is kind of, it sort of functions almost as an origin story for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, It's called Dinner Table. We were all in our places. My father complained about my mother's cooking. He shook a bottle of Tabasco over his plate without looking as he reached with his right hand for a thin aluminum pie pan, the disposable 1970s TV dinner kind that my mother kept in the cupboard. The pan swung out over the place settings and struck the left side of my mother's face with a snare drum clap. We all trembled in the glare of their red, enraged faces. Monsters here. Our siren cries broke the tableau. Only our tear-streaked faces held us together, and no one seemed able to disturb our careful arrangement to get up from our places at the table. We were set that way. The
1: the unspoken truth that nobody dare mention, hey, this is fucked up. <laughs> we just go on. We just go on. Thank you for sharing that. Um uh, I, I remember when my when my dad made a uh, after he made a suicide attempt and he had been released from the psych ward uh, on the condition that he go immediately to rehab. Um, we picked him up at the airport. It drove him directly to rehab. Dropped him off. It was Christmas Eve, and nobody said a word. Hmm. Nobody talked about it. We just drove in silence. Hmm. And I didn't even think that was fucked up until I look back later. I mean, the silence part. Obviously, I knew that the other parts of it were, you know, yeah. heavy and and painful. But um,
2: it's... Just, yeah, but when you don't have an opportunity to express that, yeah. right? Because you don't have the words. Yeah.
1: It hasn't been modeled for you. Right. I'm scared. I'm sad. Yeah. I'm worried about him, you know, why did you do that to mom i mean what what would you have said if you could have found the words and and it felt safe to say it? What would you have said back then
2: that's a good i I have no idea i the The feeling is one of utter terror and confusion like and feeling like something in the world had just shattered that I thought was there some sense of safety or, or knowing that everything was okay or that something was okay and all of a sudden nothing was okay and um, and the, this this lack of being able to be seen or acknowledged in that pain in that terror is, is the very thing that, that buries it is that 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 covers it in shame. Well, it must not be okay for me to be feeling this here. So anytime I feel this in the future, I'm going to start pushing that down under this cloak of shame. Isn't it amazing how the ripples fuck with
1: us more than the event itself? I mean, the event itself certainly is a painful memory. Um, But, you know, people who will say to a trauma victim, oh, can't you just get over it? I I don't think they realize that it's not just the memory of the event. That's not what is fucking with them. It's not feeling safe in the world. It's being afraid to open up. It's having anxiety about opening our front door and walking out into the world. You know, it's the conflict in our brain going back and forth between my pain is valid and that really was fucked up or I'm a baby. I'm a drama queen. I'm making too big of a deal of it.
2: Right. And there's some level that we skip over there, I think, that was exactly what was happening in that original moment that we keep skipping over, which is simply the acknowledgement and acceptance that this hurts. And we skip so quickly into, and this is why it hurts. And this is why it was fucked up. Or in this, here's all the reasons why, and here are all the repercussions for that. And we skip over, I'm having a feeling of pain. And it it seems to me that the only, or I wouldn't even say the only way, but the natural way, the way that we are, the way that seems to heal us is when we, f- we don't skip that step. Mm-hmm. Is when we decide that, okay, I'm in, in, in the retelling of it or in the re-experiencing and the re-traumatizing that we go through by telling the stories or, or repeating the patterns or all the different ways that we try to wrestle with it are all some form of getting away from just, I'm going to feel this now. I'm going to finally let myself feel that. And I'm going to let myself feel it for as long as I need to feel it and
1: what did that look like for you
2: oh that's still ongoing yeah it's more of a um it's an ongoing practice of rec- trying to recognize when something something in the world has my attention in a fearful way and to ask myself what am i what's what's here that's i'm afraid of hurting what what am I? Um, what am I trying to run from in not feeling the discomfort that's showing up right now?
1: And how does the discomfort present itself? Irritability, restlessness, boredom, anxiety.
2: Well, all of the, all of the above. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, for me, I think probably in the impulse, or rather, the compulsion to keep doing, to keep doing things, to keep active, to keep pushing forward, to keep. Checking things off the to do list, and that's the um uh, yeah the compulsive part of my uh, the way that i I learned to feel like I'm okay, like I'm doing the things that are going to get me love or acceptance or belonging, not just in the world but within myself. I'm not good enough unless I'm doing things and proving to myself that I'm a doer and I have value in this way mm-hmm. and um, it's when I catch myself in that, that I'm, I'm not here in this moment of what is it that's moving in me right now? And usually when I'm in that, I find myself in that as I'm escaping something. And that something just might be, it might even be something familiar, something that I'm very much aware of, but I just don't want to think about it right. or feel it right now. Yeah. So, yeah, meditation has been a very powerful tool in in helping me see those things. Yeah, it, it it
1: it's so true. Meditation can help unlock so many things. And you know, when people talk about meditation before I started doing it, I was just like, Oh, shut your fucking new agey pie hole. It you know, I'm not gonna get anything out of this. This is just, you know, people posing so they look like they know more about eastern culture than everybody else you know you're a fraud (laughs) and then a woman who was always really on edge in my support groups always wound super tight she came in one day and she was so chill and i was like paula you seem so different she's like i I started meditating and I was like, can you teach me? And she did. And I understood it. It's I remember so clearly one day I'd been, I don't know, maybe a week into, uh, meditating and I got up and I went to do the dishes and I felt like water. My limbs felt like The flow of water, Mm. they felt so loose and I didn't feel like a clock was ticking while I was washing the dishes. Like I've got to get to something else that's going to make me feel good. It's like in that moment, I felt like a sense of this is okay. Mm. This is okay. I can accept this moment and there's no place else I need to be except washing this, this dish right now and that that was kind of mind-blowing and a and a revelation for me. Um talk about your uh experiences with if any snapshots come to mind uh of of how meditation has helped you, ways it's opened your mind or released
2: your body. Yeah, I think the main way is in in the in the real disciplined practice of it, which is to say every day, um, getting to sort of finally see the way that my mind habitually works. You know, there's, there is, there are patterns and there are, um, there's a predictability to me after all. Mm-hmm. And, um, to see how my mind will go for, like one of the, one of the most common things that happens for me in meditation is I spend probably the first 10 minutes on, I spend the first minute going through a little ritual of, um, paying attention to certain aspects of my body and setting and getting into a certain kind of energy. And it feels great when I start, but then about a minute in, all of a sudden I'm working out some problem in my work and thinking Mm -hmm. about, you know, who I need to talk to or this idea. And, and, Mm -hmm. and, um, and all 10 minutes in, I realize I'm, I'm no longer here in my body. I'm yeah. lost in something. Um, so that's just see, seeing that come up over and over and over again has been really helpful to just understand about myself. And, <laughs> and, and at first that showed up as, oh, I understand this, and I wish I wasn't doing this, so I'm going to pay more attention to this so I can get rid of it. <laughs> right. Where now, though, I think I'm in a space of, well maybe I'm, maybe it's okay that I'm, you know, I feel good. You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not feeling tension. I'm not feeling anxiety. Um, I'm, it's pleasing to think about this. I'm not actively trying to solve something. It's just something happening in my, in my thoughts. And maybe if I just accept this and relax a little bit, I, um, there's something here for me to receive other than the sort of meta story of I'm watching my thoughts go by. Right. Right. Yeah. It's like, how can we,
1: you know, the, the, one of the goals of meditation or the purposes of it is to clear our mind. And how can we uh, understand, you know, what's in the garage unless we make an attempt to clear it out. And we think we know what's in the garage, but when we try to clear it out, you know, I started meditating and, and I thought, 99% 99% of the time, I'm thinking about hockey, the podcast, or sex.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and there was usually some, you know, some anxiety or some fantasy, and I would just, I would, you know, say, oh, that's interesting. Then I'm thinking about that, you know, let's try to bring it back to, to my mantra. And it, it's it's such a dose of self-knowledge Um and, like you said, not in a way to try to change it, but to just go oh okay that's that's what's in the attic mm-hmm. all right,
2: right, yeah,
1: so where do you feel like you're you're at today in you know doing the meditation and doing the the art and kind of facing your pain and and were there any other childhood moments you wanted
2: to uh share? Uh, yeah, I'll share one more. I think was it's this, this has been more of the, the most prominent story for me, which is when I was around 10, my parents sat me down to dissuade me from becoming an artist or from basically encouraging me to give up that dream because there was no future in it. And there's, you know, the, this is a very familiar story to people who have had this sort of creative impulse from a young age, but that there's, um, suffering and poverty and, um, dissatisfaction and a life of struggle. And I gave up that. I believed them, you know, I was, I was wanting to be a good boy. I was wanting to do the right thing. And so they must be, um, somehow advising me in my best interests Mm -hmm. was this, I mean, this is sort of me looking back and telling myself that this must have been what I was going on in my mind. But um, that's been, I think, the. It almost feels like that was the nail in the coffin part of the of the, um, not believing, learning to believe that I didn't have any worth of my own to follow my own loves. Right. Mm-hmm. This is where I lost the soft animal of my body, and I lost what I loved and willingly so and or, or I I complied and um even though I did become a professional artist eventually, even in that uh, before coming to to the wild geese poem for many years in that I was also um not fully myself or or not fully in my own voice, you know, still wanting to please, wanting to perform mm-hmm. Wanting to receive the external rewards of that rather than really getting a sense for the where, what is that voice inside me, so I think the where I am now in the last several years has been um, allowing this poetic voice to emerge in me as a channel for discovering that voice, for learning who I am through speaking who I am through speaking words, through finding a new relationship to language. And, um, yeah, that's very much a, a a still an unfolding conversation. And I think it probably will continue to unfold throughout my life as, because we're always changing also, right. right? We're, we're always kind of just catching up to who we are. Mm -hmm. And once we do, we're already, there's another part of ourselves that's moving on to the next part of that we're trying trying to understand and learn. So true. Yeah.
1: Uh, if people want to know more about you, where, where can they find more?
2: Uh, my website, michaelnamkung.com. That's
1: N-A-M-K-U-N-G. Yes. Um, and, and again, with the name and the author of that poem. Oh, that was Mary Oliver. Mary Oliver. Mm-hmm. The name of the poem is Wild Geese. Okay. Cause I know people are going to want to look that, Yes, look that up. And yes. I think they're going to uh, want to check out more of your stuff. Um, the live show you're doing, is that in the Bay area?
2: no that's in portland oregon oh okay on january 8th okay yeah i don't know when this is going to run but...
1: we'll put it up uh, before then so oh, great uh, so people can can check it out fantastic uh, yeah. and they can find it, uh, more about it at your website absolutely uh, yes cool Well, michael i'm so glad we got to connect thanks for coming by me
2: too paul thank you i
1: really enjoyed that um and if you are listening to this the day that this came out or the day after yes he is uh he is performing tonight, so uh, go check him out if you live there.
0: Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, "What's your secret?" Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only 14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor directed and delivered to your door treatment costs thousands less than braces plus they offer flexible financing accept eligible insurance and you can pay with your hsa fsa get 80 percent off your impression kit when you use code wondery at Byte.com. that's b-y-t-e.com start your confidence journey today with bite what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way
1: Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Angry Depresso. And she writes, Are there ever times where life is going so crappy for you that reading the loves or happy moment surveys annoy or even anger you? Occasionally, I get that feeling listening to a show when I'm super, and I'm super embarrassed by it. I just wondered if you ever have a similar reaction. Uh, I do not. But... There was a time in my life when I think I would have definitely been like, "Ugh, that's so fucking cheesy." Next, but I, for me, it balances out the darkness of the surveys, and it's it. I, I find them to be really uh, soothing and and really moving. Any comments to make the podcast better? Uh, neither a complaint nor suggestion, but I totally wanted to let you know that if I'm listening in my car. You make my asshole pucker every time you say welcome at the beginning of the podcast. I know it's coming and I know it's going to be loud as hell compared to the rest of the podcast, for me anyway, but I still freak out every time. I've been listening to the show regularly for the past four years and have a long commute to and from work, so I frequently catch the beginning of a podcast at least once a day on my commute. Paul, you beautifully scary man, never change. My asshole fitness is better for it. Well, that's why I started this podcast, is I I said the world needs tighter, assholes. And I'm going to do whatever I got to do. If it means being loud in my introduction, so be it. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself, I promise I'm not who I say I am, but don't trust anything I tell you either. Uh, she identifies as pansexual. She's 20, was raised in a stable and safe environment, and um, Was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. And also, some stuff happened, and she doesn't know if it counts. Um, And she doesn't specify what happened. She's been physically and emotionally abused. Any positive experiences with the abuser? I am the evil one because I either lied about it for attention or was intentionally complicit in trauma done unto me, done unto both me and my abuser. They didn't know I didn't want this, and I didn't know I was allowed to tell them. Darkest thoughts. Fantasizing about people getting raped in a violent way so that I could tell people and pretend their validation was uh, directed towards my real experience. I'm assuming they meant to have the word towards in there. Darkest secrets. I let my dog lick my vagina when I was around eight, maybe nine. It was the worst thing that has ever happened to me. Obviously, I didn't understand it at the time, and looking back, my memory is partially blocked, but it caused, and still does cause, the most shame in my life. Actually, I'm not sure that's true, as I lost the ability to visualize an emotional or situational hierarchy after my many depressive moods. However, this is the most I have ever written. Let myself process and own up to my past, though writing on an anonymous blog hardly seems an impressive feat. As I sit here through floods of tears, partially separating from my body and watching from above as I type through my story, I want to liberate my younger self and I want to forgive her. I want her to know she didn't have to spend a decade wondering when she would forget the memory entirely, often crying herself to sleep as she didn't have the tools to cope with what she'd done. You are so hard on yourself. The the thing with the with the dog is so incredibly common and in my opinion so Not something that you should be beating yourself up about. I mean, that is a really awkward way to say that, but, um, oh my God, oh my God. but I understand the 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 need, the desire to want to punish ourselves. that that mean voice in our head is so fucking ruthless. It is w- awake an hour before we get up out of bed. It is standing over us with a cigar and a snifter of brandy telling us we slept too late. We're a lazy piece of shit and life is passing us by. And those are lies. Those are fucking lies. And why that voice is in our brain, I don't know. Maybe it protected us as kids, but it, it does not serve us as adults. And it's time to tell it to go fuck itself. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Getting raped, watching or partaking a sexual interaction that will later cause me significant emotional distress in some way, like getting cheated on, getting punished for cheating, since I have actually done that and do. Um, you know, I've said this a thousand times on the podcast, but what turns us on and what we actually act on in our lives are, are two totally different things. Uh, as long as you are not harming someone, having a fantasy life, um, can be a healthy outlet. You know, if it becomes compulsive or you're finding, finding your behavior escalating towards harming somebody or degrading the quality of your own life, you know, that's, that's different. But, um, It is so incredibly common to have sexual fantasies that that go against our moral code, but it's what we do with them that matters. And if we're not hurting anybody, tell the mean part of your brain to go fuck itself. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I am sincerely so proud of you, and I'm sorry that my inability to accept my own self-worth has made me hate yours. What, if anything, do you wish for to live freely, to stop defining my worth by my productivity, to stop the narrator in my head and let myself live without a script? I know I haven't memorized yet, except expect myself to perform perfectly. Have you shared these things with others? Some of them only people I'm close with. I only like to share things I've already worked through so that there's nothing I actually need people for, but can still give the illusion of reciprocated trust slash vulnerability and friendships. How do you feel after writing these things down? This one was tricky because I was thinking for a while, and when I couldn't think of anything, I realized it was because I was looking for the perfectly crafted answer and it doesn't exist. Honest answer, I'm excited because I will be able to look back at my afternoon and praise myself, even if just in the smallest way, for actually acting on my thoughts and writing, for taking real time out of my day to do it instead of just thinking about doing it. And honestly, I don't even remember what I wrote down anymore. That is awesome. You know, as I I read over your survey, you know, it, it... It's so human because your go-to is to try to control things because to let things go, which would include accepting yourself for who you are, is so terrifying. It seems like jumping off a cliff. And I think a lot of us can relate to that. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? It's like living on the West Coast when you're from California. Your warm blood's gonna need a few extra layers out there no matter how stubbornly you try to acclimate. Everyone out there, they'll be wearing light layers and every once in a while, someone might shoot you a look to make you feel like your body doesn't belong, but it's okay because remember that you have made your body warm and that lovely understanding of your own comfort is enough to fill a thousand of those stairs if you let it. Disrupt the situation if you feel yourself down. Wink back. Chuckle to yourself. Zip up your coat even tighter. Your small act of resistance will restore that same sense of self, and you get to keep the coat on. You were born with warmer blood. Stop trying to change your DNA. When you go home to visit, you'll tell this story, and the people with warm blood just like yours will relate to your story. That's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you for that. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a woman who calls herself running out of time. And she writes, "Uh, I seem to be going through a rough patch, and I'm curious if you have any advice for me. I'm 26 and graduated with a bachelor's degree in August of 2020. Obviously... This was terrible timing, so after graduation I had to move back in with my parents. I love my family and I have a good relationship with them, but living with them again when I'm getting close to 30 has been very hard on my self-esteem. Now that I'm miles away from my friends and my boyfriend, I've been feeling very lonely. I've been working in customer service and babysitting to make money. I feel like a loser and a failure. Everyone my age and younger seems to be doing great, which only makes me feel worse. I feel like I'm wasting my youth by constantly feeling so depressed and anxious about my shortcomings. Uh, This reached its peak a couple of weeks ago when I contacted the suicide hotline, something I never thought I'd do. I've already upped my antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds, but I still feel awful all the time. Did you ever go through something similar in your 20s? If so, do you have any advice? Uh, the first thing I want to uh, uh, ask is um, or say is I hope that you're adjusting your meds through, under the care of your psychiatrist. I want to give you a fucking high five for reaching out to the suicide hotline. And I want to say you are working towards what you want. You know, Maybe the universe isn't complying with you on the schedule that, that you want, but you're working in customer service and you're babysitting to make money. You are doing your part. How the universe reacts to our effort, we have to surrender to that. And I like to think when I'm feeling frustrated or something, something isn't happening, I try to remind myself that, I can I can be experiencing one or two things I can appreciate I can be appreciating something good quote unquote good that's happening in my life or I can be not experiencing it but say to myself I'm building my appreciation for it should one day it come to me and that helps me chill out and be more patient with the with the universe and uh I was fucking miserable in my 20s. While I wasn't living at home, I had no boundaries in my relationship with my mom. Probably no boundaries with anybody. And I was confused and suicidal and so fucking angry. You you are you are not alone. You are not alone in sending you some love. This is an awfulsome moment <laughs> filled out by a guy who calls himself Dick Dickerson's Marching Boner Band. And he writes... I just made my first appointment for a group therapy meeting. How soon into this should I admit that I've been excitedly watching my neighbor's 12-year-old daughter for the last year and a half? Fuck my life. Um, I wanted to read this because, you know, how serious your fantasies are about this 12-year-old that you're watching— Um, it it is not something to take lightly because, um, you know, it's one thing to keep our thoughts inside our head and, and it is another thing to, um, put ourselves in situations that might compromise our integrity i don't know really how how to word this other than saying if you find your behavior escalating please stop watching that child whatever reason you need to give your neighbor you're too busy whatever um you owe it to yourself and especially that child to make sure that no boundaries get crossed um And as far as sharing it in your group therapy, um, I would share it with a therapist first before you share that on a group level because that's a pretty heavy thing to just, I think, lob out there. And um, you might be met with... uh, And again, I don't know what the group therapy, if there's a particular topic uh, around it. But anyway, just my two thoughts, uh, two cents on... uh, on that stuff. This is from the shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself wholesome choking. Uh, She identifies as straight. She's in her 20s, uh, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, uh, but she writes, uh, I've got all the symptoms of someone who's been through sexual trauma, but I can't remember anything because I believe A Scientologist auditing has brainwashed me to forget my real past and remember a past life. She's been emotionally abused. She writes, I remember one instance where I wore a crop top at the age of 11 and my father took my clothes off, put me in a large white t-shirt, and dropped me off in the ghetto of Dallas, Texas. I was there for what seemed like forever. I curled up in a convenience store bathroom before my dad came back to pick me up. He pulled over in his H-1 Hummer and asked a whore, her words not mine, to come over. He made her describe her life for me. She said she was a public service worker. That was the day I learned that I could live off of my looks. Any positive experiences with the abusers? My father, he seems too stupid to be the abuser, but that's what he was. Darkest thoughts. Sexual perversion seems to ruin my present thought. Darkest secrets. I put myself in victimizing positions, so I'm always correct, despite my health or safety. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Bestiality and degradation of women is the only thing that makes me feel loose enough to come. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? You're dumber than me, and I have you to thank for that. Anything you wish for. I wish my mom was alive. Have you shared these things with others? Some of them I feel safe enough sharing. How do you feel after writing these things down? Like I wish I had more things to munch on. Thank you for sharing that stuff. I appreciate you going deep with that, and I'm sorry that you experienced such a fucked-up childhood. Ugh. This is from the Love Survey, built out by Scoops, and they write, I love the sound of wind in the leaves. I love it when humans do weird, stupid things, like collecting collections of things and filling their home with kitsch, or dyeing their 70-year-old gray hair, all of it the colors of the rainbow, or putting a giant stuffed animal in a place where a person might like to sit. I love four-way stops because it forces everyone to take turns, one of the kindergarten rules so many of us adults seem to forget. I love it when my Netflix DVDs arrive in the mail and I have a new film to explore. Yes, I still watch DVDs because streaming does weird things to my brain. I love spicy food that makes me sweat a little bit when I eat it. I love it when the inspiration to cook something new strikes me and I go absolutely mad in the kitchen, making a delicious meal. I love walking around my city through all the alleys, alleys and examining the trash on the street. I've seen everything from dead rats to weather-worn fake fruit, entire trays of spoiled food, beautiful art, and abused toys that would make Sid from Toy Story look like a benevolent goddess. <laughs> Those are fucking awesome. My God, you seem like a really, really creative uh, person. I love just that that moment of seeing the world through someone else's eyes, you know. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a trans man who calls himself the Invisible Man. Uh, He identifies as bisexual. He's in his 20s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, A man I was drinking with performed unwanted oral sex on me. I orgasmed during it but refused to return the favor. I understand that my body's response was natural, but it kept me from recognizing this incident as assault for a number of months. I simply thought of it as a bad lay until one day, realizing that I had, in fact, been raped. Anyone who says it wasn't rape because there was no penetration can go fuck themselves. Agreed. Uh, He's been physically abused and emotionally abused. Uh, Not sure if bullying counts. (laughs) Yes, bullying counts. I was mercilessly beaten up, teased and mocked by the kids at school and in my neighborhood from ages 5 to 10. The most memorable time involved... All of the kids at the, at the playground, including kids who were, quote, friends, punching and kicking me, and one boy chasing me with his dick out, trying to piss on me. I was six. Fuck. Darkest thoughts. I have fantasized about raping women my entire life. I'm fairly sure that it's more about the sexual frustration of not having a penis than about the actual sexual act. As a teenager, I used to get off imagining the screams, crying, and begging from my imagined victims. I was very angry. These thoughts consumed me as a teen. I understand why kids shoot up schools. These thoughts have mostly calmed since finding a stable romantic relationship. I only rarely fantasize about rape anymore. I'm getting much better about not hating myself over these thoughts. And I think that's the really important thing, too, here is... uh, you know, when I interviewed Kimberly Quinlan, a therapist about OCD, you know, one of the things she said is the most important thing is these thoughts that you're having, are you morally opposed to them? And that is the most important thing. We can't control the thoughts that pop into our head, but we can take comfort in knowing that it's something that we're morally opposed to. Darkest Secrets. I once visited a friend out of town. She was a girl that I had a crush on. I had imagined hurting her in all sorts of sexual ways. I tried to sleep in the room next to her where she was. I had a knife that I had found while helping the family clean out boxes that day. I actually had the knife in my hand and was imagining getting up and stabbing her with it. I felt a blackness come over me. An evil, sick, amazing rush of anger, sex, and longing. That was the closest I ever came to hurting someone like that. I still don't know what stopped me, but am forever grateful I didn't go through with it. Sexual fantasies, most powerful to you. Being forced into various sexual acts. I think it's my brain's way of justifying my desires without outwardly acknowledging them. Have you shared these things with others? Never. I've spent years unpacking these feelings and getting over the image of myself as a predator in my head. Also, I don't want to add to any negative image that people have of trans people. If I had been born with a penis, I probably wouldn't have felt such hopeless, angry frustration towards women. How do you feel after writing these things down? Better. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You're not alone, you're not evil. you're not a freak. We're all just broken people hurting each other and trying to do better. Thank you for that. And I you know, I went back and forth on whether or not to read that because I didn't want to add to, you know, any of the burden that trans people live with. but I, I also feel an obligation in the podcast to read unvarnished stories of people's lives, especially people who are marginalized. Um, and I think it's it's clear, you know, reading that, that, that you have a conscience and that you are heading in the right direction in, in terms of your healing and dealing with your anger. And, I mean, fuck, what, I can't imagine what it's like growing up trans or non-binary and getting the bullied the way that you did I mean fuck who wouldn't be angry and finally this is from the love survey filled out by Sasha and uh, Sasha writes I love my boyfriend Bear I love the compassion he has for everyone he meets I love the way he loves both of my dogs especially my train wreck of a dog Bodhi he's misunderstood says Bear I love the way he holds space for me, how he listens to my fears and anxieties without judgment. I love how transparent he is with me. He expresses himself clearly and directly, and I know he isn't afraid that I'm going to judge him either. I love that honesty and respect comes first in our relationship, and sex, friendship, and romanticism fall solidly in line as a result. Oh, I love that. I love how much he loves poop jokes. I love that he always tells me I look hot in sweatpants and glasses. I love that he openly struggles with the feeling of, quote, being a pussy, but that he still never engages in toxic masculinity. I love that he's five years sober. I love the love he has for his niece, his brothers, his mom, his dad, his friends. I love that he always shows up. I love his drive to succeed. I love that we don't have to spend every minute together or be in constant contact to feel solid with each other. I love that as long as I'm doing what's best for me and what makes me happy, I know I'll always have his support and encouragement. Wow. So awesome. So awesome. Thank you for that. Well, I hope you enjoyed uh, today's episode. I hope you liked the new uh, opening montage. And if you're uh, if you're out there and you're struggling, uh, never forget you are not alone. And thanks for listening.
0: Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird ways. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird ways.